Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavna, still free and at large after our last episode on the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, that's it, Gary. You, you go ahead, tempting fate, poking the bear. You just keep on going. I've been threatened with two different counts of legal action this week, Michael, and neither of them came from the Chief Justice. Yeah, neither of them came from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court yet. Well, I mean, yes, he does have some significant amount of time, but we live in hope, Michael. Hope that if I go down, I'll drag you down screaming with me. Yeah, and I don't doubt for a minute that that is your hope. It was me. I was an innocent boy, and I was led astray by Michael into his deviant <laughs> lifestyle. As a, a dear friend of mine would often say in this and many other contexts, Sir, bigger boys came along and made me do it. Yes, yes, like that. Like that. I'm sure that will I'm sure that will work. Anyway, there's two topics we want to talk about today. I'm not gonna ask you how you are, Michael, as you so rudely interjected during my opening monologue, which you know is the reason I get out of bed in the morning. I thought you got out of bed so your mother could make it. <laughs> anyway. What are the two things you'd like to talk about, Gary? Well, one is hate speech, because we have started to see some legislative movement on this, Michael. And um it's a it's a doozy. The we sat down with the Department of Justice last year and walked through the um, the hate speech consultation and pointed out the areas we thought would be problem. And uh, I'm not sure what the report was like in the end, but uh, a couple of parliamentarians from Fianna Fáil managed to take every area that we said would be problematic and fit them into one bill. Now we will touch on that. But Michael, moving on a bill that would, uh, you know, remove hate from the country, I think we would we would fairly say, and lead us to approve of those who live different lifestyles. Uh, on a tangential line off that, that I'm really, really trying to find a link to, uh, the booze burka. The booze burka has arrived. It has arrived. I was going to make some comments about Islam and then link it to the booze burka, and I'm sure it would have been terribly witty, but I also may have said something inadvertently racist, so I just thought it was best not to do it. Although it has been slightly modified, I think, in so far we we should maybe call it the booze hijab rather than the booze burka. It isn't going to be in off-licenses which uh, seems kind of obvious. It's not going to be in airports either, Um, but it applies to mixed retail traders. So for those who haven't heard this, there's new regulations on the sale of alcohol in supermarkets coming into effect. They're coming in from yesterday. As always, TRSI is on the cutting edge of news. (laughs) So in 2018, a legislation was passed. Um, it was the Public Health Alcohol Act, I think. Yes, which also I if I may be wrong here, Gary, but I'm, I think that was the act which also introduced the instruments to allow for my very favourite thing, minimum alcohol pricing for a person that has an alcoholic drink at this stage of my life once every two months. I do get the feeling sometimes I talk so much about drink, particularly alcohol pricing, that I must give the impression of being some kind of raving alcoholic. But here we are again, back with the Public Health Act. And as you say, came in yesterday to see mixed sale shops being forced to barrier or enclose alcohol away from the rest of the store. Yeah, so alcohol has to be enclosed, cordoned off, kept out of public sight, hence the name the booze burka. The idea behind this was that lots of people buy alcohol on impulse 
So remove it from view and you drive down the impulse purchases. And also by hiding it from view, children who are notoriously respectful of adults forbidding things to them will know that it's not for them and they'll leave well enough alone. Yeah. And I, I don't know, go buy drugs on the street where there's absolutely no regulations or control on them. But this, this is fantastic. This is, I, I, I'm quoting the line from The Independent, which I'm going to give the reporters some some respect here and assume that this was done with their tongue so firmly in their cheek that it was coming out their ear. One of the major aims of the legislation is to reduce the attractiveness of alcohol to children and young people. Because as you know, Gary, if you want to get children or young people, teenagers especially, not to be interested in something, the best thing to do is put up barriers, build a wall or a fence of some kind and say you are not allowed to go in there. There is something in there that only adults, people like me, are allowed to buy and consume. Not for you, Jimmy. You will, you will remember, Gary, the, 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 the massive legislation that happened in the, in the period, in, in the, the beginning of the 20th century, when after all of the Victorian anti-sex, that young people just stopped having sex because they were just so turned off by what was obviously a bad thing. So they had to force kids out. You know, you go out there and meet people and have this engage in Congress because children are so big. What you, no child, for example, ever saw an apple tree behind a high wall and said, rather than have the apples, which are easily available to me over here, I will climb this wall, steal these apples because this man particularly is possibly going to chase us with dogs. That never happens. I, I just don't get it, Michael. I just don't know what could be so compelling about the forbidden liquid. It's it's bizarre. Uh, that it's only for adults. Only for adults. This strange liquor. I mean, it's like, I don't know, it's probably different for you, but I remember as a kid being in, we occasionally go into a bar with my parents and the seaside or something, and we would have orange or whatever. My father would have a pint of Guinness. And the pint of Guinness cost a lot more than our orange. So I used to think, my goodness, this thing which only grown-ups are allowed and costs so much more than orange, it must be it must be like the a platonic idea of orange. Even though when I was six or seven I only had a very sketchy idea of platonic ideas. And then one day when I was whatever age, nine or ten, I persuaded my father, maybe actually a little bit earlier, to let me have a sip of his Guinness. After which I became convinced that adults were just simply psych just psychologically disturbed. Why would you drink that muck when you could have Fanta? <laughs> but this notion that by making something difficult, making something behind a wall, but you can see it. I mean, it's it, unless you're under what is what's the the height? One point five meters. I think it's one point one point two meters. I think it also depends, doesn't it? It's, it... Sorry, you're right. It's one point five meters. Although there are other options, when uh, you can install. Uh, units that can be like 2.2 meters in size and you know all of this michael is going to be uh monitored by hse officers but allow that it's 1.5 meters so once you're over the 1.5 meters in uh in uh in height or you're or you're not standing back shall we say because perspective works here as well 
you will actually be able to see all those shiny bottles, all those lovely, strangely shaped bottles of gin and whiskey and all those lovely bottles of wine and those chill cabinets containing dozens and dozens of different types of exotic beers. Uh, but it will be there, like the Garden of Eden, protected by these high walls. It is just such a fucking nonsense. Even if it did work, and it won't work, at least in relates to children. And if it relates to adults, well, then Alcohol Action Ireland can go mind their own business. But a uh, story I saw today, Michael, headline was Irish teenagers turn to illegal drugs as smoking and drinking rates fall. And I just, I have a feeling that if you were to poll adults on this, I'd say, would you rather that your child drank or, you know, did the odd bit of smack? <laughs> Most people would err on the side of you know caution. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is that if you were to take reasonable good times, if you were to take a certain sample of people and gave them a, a moderate amount of heroin over a period of time, but regularly, say two or three times a week, a moderate amount of heroin, and over the same period of time gave them a moderate amount of alcohol, I think after a year you'd find that probably, because heroin is even more Moorish than gin and tonic, that more people would actually depend, would be looking, would be, shall we say, more actively engaged in the seeking out of heroin than in the seeking out of gin and tonics. On the issue of children, by the way, we actually, we have laws. It is actually illegal to sell alcohol to children under the age of 18 in these shops. So precisely what the issue is there. But not only is it illegal, Michael, but... Because the product is legal, but it's illegal to sell it to those people, if you sell it to children, you could lose your license. Yes. Unlike, let's say, a product which is illegal, such as heroin, where you won't lose your license if you uh, sell it to children. In fact, <laughs> no. nothing, oh. nothing really will happen to you at all because it's all the same. I think the environmental health officers are falling, are falling down on the job there, Gary. I know. We need HSE officers on every street corner and crack den in this country. Yeah, because there's a lot of very poor hygiene as well amongst heroin users. But I will say, every time you say about uh, heroin being Moorish, all I can remember is the line from Brass Eye about um, the episode they did on drugs. And uh, if you haven't seen Brass Eye or the day today, fantastic sends up of a uh, current affairs program. Beautiful show. Was this the one on cake? The one on, no. This Actually, I think it, it may have been, yes, it was the cake episode. But it cuts to a scene of Chris Morris, uh, who is the presenter of the show, injecting heroin. And he looks <laughs> up and says, Luckily, the amount of heroin I use is harmless. I inject about once a month on a purely recreational business. That's obviously fine. But what about other people less stable, less educated, less middle class than me? Builders <laughs> or blacks, for example. <laughs> yes. I don't know. if you, Would you get away with that today? Would it be? Maybe you would. I don't know. Well, considering they got taken off the air for the, for the episode they did, the last episode. No, I think even then they weren't getting away with it. But can we just also point out another couple of boring things? I haven't looked at the numbers in the last two weeks, but it certainly was the case that we, to, to my memory, alcohol consumption peaked in Ireland in the early 2000s. For a very long time, Ireland actually was bottom of the league table in developed countries when it came to the alcohol consumption because we had a very large number of people in Ireland who just didn't drink at all because of the Pioneer Total Absence Association and other things like that. You also had a large number of people who only drank 
in rarely and in moderation. Also, in comparison to the rest of the Europe, we didn't drink uh, wine or beer with our meals. We only tended to drink out. We didn't drink uh, digestives, digestives, or aperitifs, as you like that. So, in the nineties, we go through a binge. There's a massive increase in in alcohol consumption, but at a, as I'm tired pointing out, pretty well the time that. The markets here become much more competitive and the price of alcohol starts to decline precipitously. Our consumption of alcohol also starts to decline. And year on year, we have our alcohol consumption has declined and we're down around 30 percent, 30 percent of now, as for young people. Young people are starting to drink later. They're drinking less. They're binging less. They are far more concerned about alcohol for the, the, this notion that we are wrapped in this terrible awful problem with alcohol in this country that's not to say there aren't people in this country that have a problem with alcohol that is not to say there are abusive drinkers that there are alcoholics that there are people whose lives are damaged but for example uh, the last time we talked about this i i remember gary i'd looked up the who figures on this, this rather fantastic map produced on it and i saw for example we are in the quadrant the, above Sweden when it comes to per capita consumption of alcohol, but we are below Sweden when it comes to illnesses caused by alcohol or hospitalizations occurring as a result of the consumption of alcohol. We we have, a, there are individuals with problems. The notion that we are absolutely wrapped and trapped in this terrible problem is simply not the truth. You're thrown around these numbers and these statistics and these arguments from historical trends and data. And let's be honest, no one cares. I mean, Alcohol Action Ireland are the people particularly pushing this, and they have... Paid for one... by the taxpayer. Yeah, I think it's, it is important to explain what Alcohol Action Ireland is. Alcohol Action Ireland is a uh, organisation funded by a mixture of public and private donations, according to their website, uh, that lobbies for stricter uh, restrictions on alcohol in fact you know they if you see someone saying something like alcohol is not a normal product and we must ensure it's never seen as a normal product chances are they come from alcohol action ireland now michael just a, a little interesting note here alcohol action Ireland are very keen to tell you they're not entirely funded by the public purse yeah and that might be shocking to people who are aware of their financials but uh, I pulled their financials for 2018. They received €251,640 uh, in the year ending uh, 31st December 2018 from grants, from public grants. Would you like to guess how much they got in donations, private donations in that period, given that they're obviously very keen to say they're not just the government paying lobbyists to lobby the government which would be a ridiculous situation they got 250,000 from the taxpayer to lobby against the taxpayer doing what he wants or she wants so let's allow that they must have got when well, they must have got what 50,000 from donations 100,000 oh my sweet summer child michael now i must say here that it is possible that some of the grant income is from uh, you know, other institutions, non-governmental sources. So it, maybe not all of it is governmental. But when you go donations and legacies, 
They received in 2018 1,303 euro. Wow, they're, they're almost as popular as the National Council for Women. They probably have about the same amount of members. Yeah, and success in raising money from anybody except the taxpayer. Well, there you go. And listen to that line again. Purchasing alcohol is not the same as buying ordinary groceries. They welcomed this uh, because, what was the line again, that great line? Um, Alcohol is not an ordinary product and should never be seen as such. You know, there are people in this country who have a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. And I suspect that the alcohol action Ireland is 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 one group of them when I asked an Italian once about you have that on wine they looked at me well you can't have that on wine I said well why not well, you can't have that on food yeah wine's food now that to me seems like an eminently sensible approach to alcohol Michael I I, I was slightly incorrect earlier and after I said it I realized how incorrect I was I said that all of the 251,640 euro that they got in 2018 might not have come from, you know, might have come from private grants. Uh, no, I actually remembered now 251,640 euro of the 251,640 euro came from the Health Service Executive Statutory Funding. Okay, so then we've got that cleared up anyway. That I will, I will also say this, like you're looking for a pretty good paying job. Now... In 2018, they only had three employees, or an average of three employees. But there was not a person there, Michael, earning less than 50,000. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would make sense. I remember once, some couple of years ago, um, DBI had, written, <laughs> strangely, had written up uh, a piece and gotten, I got, got a piece in the Independent on minimum alcohol pricing. And I was invited to go on primetime to talk about it. And I got bumped, Gary, bumped to the last minute. And I had to ask my question from the audience. I was very disappointed. But in the green room beforehand, I was talking to a couple of people, including a representative of one of the, uh, the uh, shall we say, the anti-alcohol lobby groups. And I was with a friend of mine, and we're talking about her attitude to this. And the question we were asked five times was, who was paying for, who's paying us? Well, was it, was the Vintners? Was it one of the was one of the breweries? Were Diageo paying us? At least they couldn't get the hang of the idea that you could possibly do this as Joe Public, as citizen of the Republic, just because you thought this was a bad idea. No, no, has to be everything has to be done at the on 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 foot of some strange pecuniary peculation, some kind of corrupt. Uh, now. And I'm saying this because I just want to remind if there are large alcohol groups out there who want to corrupt us, Gary, we are perfectly willing to uh, to take those donations because we're going to be oh. lobbying for this anyway. So if you really want to come up board. And- yes, I, I think we have the, the wonderful situation of doing things you believe in and then piteously looking around and going, would anyone like to give us money? <laughs> While everybody who disagrees with us is convinced we're getting money anyway. Yeah, there is that. You're just looking at them in their larges. They're entirely government-funded larges. And simply saying, yes, because I really picked the way to make more money here, didn't I? I'm thinking, God, yeah. If Diageo want to pay me 50 grand a year to, to, to do this, I'm perfectly happy to. But sadly, no. No, so that is, uh, that is the, the booze burka is there now. It's 1.5 metre high. 
Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that's a proper burka. Well, it's just, it's just useless. I just it's like, useless. Yeah. It gives Alcohol Action Ireland a wonderful thing where they can sit down and go, "We did this, we we pushed for this, and we got it." And now you know we are going to drive down alcohol rates. And when alcohol rates fall, because they're already falling, we'll see what happened in Scotland when minimal alcohol pricing came in. And then over the course of that year, uh, alcohol consumption fell. And then they went, oh, this was called by minimum alcohol pricing, which was really compelling unless you looked back at the historical trends and saw actually not only had it had fallen, but it had fallen less than the years preceding it. Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's that wonderful thing of get in on the downturn and then go, I did that. We're kind of seeing it with COVID at the minute. We're seeing the sort of regulations are working. But the numbers started dropping before you did these regulations. I don't want to misspeak, but there was a piece of legislation introduced in Canada. Now, it may not have been the federal piece. It may have been in Ontario or Quebec or somewhere. But I seem to remember there was somewhere where briefly they introduced some little bit of alcohol legislation. It may have been unit pricing. And actually, uh, there was a slight uptick in, uh, in alcohol consumption. In all these nudge things, my favourite of them all was there was a study done by Cornell on sugar taxes. I don't know if you came across this. <coughs> One of the first countries to introduce sugar taxes on fizzy drinks was Mexico, because Mexico has a very big problem with, uh, with obesity and with uh, sugar consumption. They drink lots of sugar sodas. And they discovered that one of the uh, consequences according to the study in Cornell anyway, was that where that people started to drink more beer as a result of the the sugar tax and also chocolate. So that was a, that was a that was a big success because, of course, Gary, the thing about the consumer is and the tired of it, the consumer is completely passive. The consumer will never react in any way, shape or form to any legislation that's introduced to stymie them doing things they might actually want to do. They will, like sheep, they will be driven through the gap. Again, I don't really, I don't really get the sheep thing. I feel that this whole sheeple thing was said by people who've never had to deal with sheep. Actually, it's true of cows. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've had a situation where you go near, you're, you're moving sheep and then you look away for a second and one of them is two and a half miles away somehow on top of a fucking shed yeah and you're like what how did that sheep are bastards yeah absolutely cows cows you just don't get into the crush and you're fine if you if, if you have milking cows particularly of a certain age as we have you could basically leave the door the door to the milking shed open and the gate to the to the field open and they would they would parade it out and parade in and parade out and always in exactly the same order as well so the much more biddable, much more directional cows. But uh, sheep have got that reputation and the others. Unless we introduce legislation, Gary, maybe that could be covered by hate legislation. Reading the hate legislation, it's very hard to see what isn't covered by the hate legislation. Which is being, for all you Finnefallers listening there, both in and outside of the doll, is being carried forward by Finnefall at the minute because michael i think you know when you're on 11 percent and your older voters are deserting you in swades but also you're not progressive enough to pick up the younger voters who are more attracted to you know Sinn Féin and things that have a little bit of oomph behind them a little bit edgier 
what you really need to do is you need to bring in hate speech legislation because the last two years, three years, hasn't been a wonderful demonstration that the people you think you're going to win over with this don't like you to begin with. And they're never going to vote for you. Three Fianna Fáilers are bringing this forward. Lisa Chambers. Are they all Fianna Fáil? They're all Fianna Fáil, Michael. There you go. Lisa, I knew, but the other show, I thought one of them was in Bill. There you go. All Fianna Fáilers. Well, it, it's, it's very much the Fianna Fáil of Hall, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, yes, it is. So it's gone through the first stage in the Shannon. It was meant to go to the second stage yesterday. It doesn't seem to. It's not in the book. So I assume they pushed it forward to next week and they just didn't note it anywhere because why would that be important? Yeah. I was told they're debating it next week. I don't know if that's right. Well, the transcript says this week, but uh, I'm sure it will eventually happen. So senators, uh, let's see, Lisa Chambers, Robbie Gallagher and Fiona O'Loughlin brought forward the hate speech bill. Uh, it's called the Criminal Justice Hate Crime Bill 2020. I'll include a link to it in the uh, bottom of the podcast and it is very short it is very very short it is i would say and i want to be kind on this because we occasionally meet politicians um it's i would say not optimally written it depends on your perception if you want to make sure that pretty well everything could possibly be a hate crime well, then it's well written. So the first the first thing you need to know about this uh, about this bill, and we'll, we're just going to touch on it here, and I, I think I'll, we'll, I'll probably write an article on this, and the EBI will most likely release some stuff on this, and in doing so, I think we will make public the, uh, the documents we gave in to the Department of Justice last year. Right. Um, I think we will go to the authors who helped us with that, get their permission, make it public, and we will also probably send it to the senators in question. But hate crime, now this is quoting from the bill. Hate crime includes any offence that is perceived by a victim or any other person, they're missing a comma in there, but we'll let that go, to be wholly or partially motivated by prejudice against a relevant individual based on, you know, all the nonsense stuff, all the, the usual stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Important, important point here. What it doesn't do, and this we knew this was going to happen. We spent a long time talk, when we talked to the Department of Justice talking about this. What they didn't want to do was put in hate speech laws where anyone would have to prove you were actually motivated by hate. Because that's very difficult. Yes. So what this does is if the victim or any other person, not a reasonable person any other person thinks this is motivated by hate or xenophobia or racism or homophobia or prejudice then you have arguably committed hate crime which is a bit of a problem because the bill says that hate crime should be used as an aggregated or an, uh, seen as an aggravating factor and you might wonder what that means so again i will tell you what it means Every person guilty of committing a relevant offence aggravated by hate crime pursuant to section 3.1 shall be liable on conviction on indictment. I don't know why that, that's, I think, should not be written that way, but that's exactly what it says. To the maximum penalty that can be imposed for the commission of said offence. 
Which kind of sounds like a mandatory sentencing direction. Because that's what it is. So effectively, this bill would mean that any person could say that what you had done was perceived as a hate crime, and therefore it would be a hate crime, and that would require a judge to give you the maximum term for your uh, for, for whatever you had done. Now, you might think, how bad can that be? And it may shock you to, to see that there are actually some offences that can have maximum uh, imprisonments that are actually very long, that you wouldn't think of. Because people generally get like, you know, six months and or a year and six months and off and just all of that stuff. But the maximum might be 12 years. It's just not used. The guy, I, to me, there are lots of words in here which I think are concerning, but the word that, I've, that screams concern to me here is perceived. Hate crimes include any offence that is perceived by a victim or any other person to be wholly or partially motivated by prejudice against, etc. No, it doesn't say any offence that might reasonably be perceived. There's no, there's no standard applied here. There's nothing which requires the person to be reasonable or balanced or to have grounding or to have uh, evidence or to have a, it could, it's a perception, which could say somebody comes along and I don't know, boffs me on the noggin one night in Cable Street coming out of Neelands. And he happens to be wearing a lot of Burberry, right? Now, and I discovered that Burberry is the fashion choice of the chav, shall we say. And part of, I'm just making this up, just, it happens to be that there's a bit of a tradition within the chav community of homophobia. And I say, well, I, he was obviously, he's, he's, he's one of those chavs, he's one, they're all bloody homophobes, you know. He did that because he saw me coming out of Needlands and he just hit me. Why else would he have done it? That was my perception. That was my feet. I perceived that. It's, 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 I can't see how this is anything but a completely subjective standard. And I don't see how you can, how the court can measure this. This is simply reporting. All this is, well, it was my sense that he did this because I, it was my sense that she did this because. And that's the, st I, I, I can't see that this, there's another standard to this. And I'm, I'm open to correction. I'm, if, if and this becomes law, I'm very hopeful that, I hope dearly that there is some kind of, shall we say, ground floor to this to this position. Because, but I can't see where it is. So I mean, this is there. There's another part of the the act which is relevant on this, but this is something we talked about with the Department of Justice at great length. That this was our primary concern, and that this is an issue in other jurisdictions, and. Their line was, so are you concerned that if we put in perception uh, that this will mean that innocent people are jailed? And my retort was, no. If you put it in as perception and someone says that they perceived it to be a hate crime, guilty people will be jailed. Because you will have written the law in such a way that their intent does not matter. Yes. So it's not. It's not, it's not going to be innocent people. You will have found anyone claimed guilty. Which, I mean, worked for the witch finders for a while, but generally is not considered a good part of the modern judicial system. Now, however, Michael, so there it says that 
uh, any offence that is perceived by a victim or other person to be wholly or partially motivated by prejudice. However, if you go down and you go offence aggravated by hate crime, which is a hate crime, which is section two. Yeah. An offence is aggravated by hate crime against a relevant individual if, at the time of committing the offence or immediately before or after doing so, a person displays racism, homophobia, xenophobia, anti-religious prejudice, or disability hate crime towards a relevant individual, or the offence is motivated wholly or partly by racist, homophobic, xenophobic, anti-religious prejudice, or disability hate crime towards a relevant individual. Now, section 21A, which is the part of displaying, nowhere in the definition of hate crime does it require a display. So, what will, what will take precedent here? Because you can always argue under 21B, where you say the offence is motivated, well, that's where the perception will come in. It seems a bizarre wording of the bill, that on one hand you go, well, it's perception-based. Also, you have to demonstrate it. Well, also, it has I mean, to be displayed. Just look, look, at, look at the definition of homophobia. Homophobia in- oh, that's a good one, yeah. includes yeah. negative and uninformed feelings towards homosexuality or individuals who are identified or perceived as being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Now, which is another one which is fantastically badly written because you can read that as negative feelings and uninformed feelings or homophobia or you can read it as saying it needs to be both negative and uninformed and you can say uninformed things or negative things as long as you don't have the other thing i'm just worried about a piece of legislation which is which is making which is making law for feelings well, Finn Fall aren't, and they're your people. They're not my people. Oh, they're not my people. They, le- I didn't leave Finn Fall. Finn Fall left me. Homophobia includes negative and uninformed feelings. It's also it's it's an oddly written bill. I, I just put that out there, where it says that uh, racism includes prejudice against or antagonism towards an individual on the basis of his or her race or ethnicity, and includes prejudice against or antagonism towards a relevant individual. But then it defines relevant individual to be not just people who are identified by race, but also disability, gender identity and expression, sexual orientation, transgender identity, sex characteristics, or age or perceived age. And that that just seems an odd way of doing it. Why would you throw in a term just there and, and never else? Oh, also, Michael, one interesting thing about the definition of homophobia, just to go back. Yeah. Racism, to be racist under this bill, you need to be prejudiced towards an individual. However, if you read the homophobia entry, it says negative and uninformed feelings towards homosexuality or individuals. So you can be homophobic and presumably there create a hate crime by uh, making a statement about homosexuality in general. But to be a racist under this bill, uh, you would have to actually hate a particular individual. So you can hate, like, the Jews, or the British, or anything. Uh, just not any particular person who makes up that group. Okay, sorry, just, can then, look, looking, for example, you're, we talked about sentencing. Uh, on the section of sentencing for relevant offence aggravated by hate crime. In section 3, part 1, it says, where is proven or demonstrated to the satisfaction of the court that a motivating factor of this commission of the relevant offence 
as set out in the schedule to this act, was aggravated by hate crime. By hate crime was aggravated by hate crime. Well, if it was a hate, how can it be aggravated by hate crime? It, it, it's, it is a hate crime. It's not aggravated by hate crime. You have to. There's no debate here that these people need a good editor. But uh, my my point, more more substantial point is, where it is proven or demonstrated to the satisfaction of the court that such a f- motivating factor. But we we are told that a hate crime is any offence that is perceived by the victim or any other person. Perceived. So surely, as long as... The, oh, what that's saying is, if the court is satisfied that the person that that the victim or other, some other person perceived it to be so, well then, that's the standard, to demonstrate that it was indeed a hate crime. For 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 a piece of legislation, it seems to be in need of editing. And I'm not a lawyer, of course. Therefore, maybe I'm missing the nuances here. One thing I did like about it was having been rather woolly all over the place. It then gets terribly precise in one area <laughs> i don't know why but this i was i was i i impressed by the fact that there's a line which says roma includes roma sinti kale gypsies romanicals boyash ashkali egyptians yenish dom and lom now gary if there are people out there who are committing hate crimes on the basis of the really negative feelings they have towards the boyash, Ashkali, Yenish, Dom or Lom. Well, then I'm saddened uh, by that and I abhor that. I am, however, kind of impressed that there are people in Ireland who can identify anybody as being boyash, Ashkali or Yenish. You know, I, I, I got to that line and... Uh... It was one of those wonderful things of just being able to tell immediately what kind of groups had had the most influence during the lobbying and consultation process of this. Because I, I think, like you, Michael, I just assumed the Boyash were doing okay in Ireland. <laughs> because um, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone knows who they are. Boy, the, most the Boyash are doing okay, but not as well as the Ashkali or the Yenish. I mean, God, the Yenish are flying. But you have to say, in the middle of all of this, Egyptians. How many Egyptians are there in the world? There must be. There's, there's over a there's hundred million Egyptians anyway, isn't there? A lot of people in Egypt, and they are included in this act for the purposes of this legislation. Roma will include Egyptians. So, all those Egyptian haters out there, better be careful, because they can be done not just for xenophobia, but very specifically for hate crimes against Roma. It is also quite explicitly redundant, though, because relevant individual includes individuals identified on the basis of their nationality, their colour, their race, and their ethnicity. So then the sort of also the Roma. Like, well, okay, whatever, but the Egyptians definitely come in on one of those other grounds. <laughs> As I imagine do the Yenish and the Ashkali. Maybe even the Sinti. Uh, no, a Sinti I had heard of. I knew there was. I, I was aware of the Sinti. So, but the rest of them just all and all new, all new to me. There was actually only one I didn't recognise, and that was the kale. I had to go and look what that was, and apparently it is a um, kale gypsies are Finnish. 
Ah. They're Romani people who live almost entirely in Finland, and apparently there's a, there's some in Sweden as well. You're like, well, we're probably not getting many of those in Ireland, are we? No, no, not that. No, I had heard of the Dom and the Lom in, in my deep, dark memory. I will, ad- I will admit the Yenish and the Boyash I had, had escaped me. But I, I tell you, the first thing I do when I'm getting off here is I'm hitting, I'm hitting Wikipedia. And I shall be informing myself about the Yenish and the Boyash. I also think, by the way, fantastic names. It's the kind of names that you'd imagine in one, you know, those, those war, uh, online war games where they invent peoples, sort of, where you're, you're, you're Genghis Khan and you're going across Asia. Oh, yeah, like the, the boyish sounds like, uh, you know, someone you'd have to take out in like the mid tier of a strategy game, <laughs> possibly somewhere in the steeps. Yes. The the Yenisher, a brave and courageous people fighting somewhere in the in the high Caucasus. Actually, you know, just just I know we're talking about the hate speech bill, but I meant to mention it at the time. Have you ever thought, Michael, there's not enough things in the world that would make you want to kill yourself? No, no, I, I've I've always thought there there are enough. Are you going to give me give me another one? I've got one more thing that might just push you over the edge and it, spiraling into the void we're all going to end up in eventually. Yeah. I have a strong proponent of the idea there are too many podcasts and there should be less podcasts. And people say that's hypocritical, but I've never said we shouldn't be one of the ones dead. Uh, Alcohol Action Ireland has a podcast called The Alcohol File. It does, does it? I'd say that's a it's laugh a, a minute. podcast uh, featuring independent analysis of our societal relationships with alcohol. Independent analysis, yes. And yes. I'm sure a lot of debate on that, Gary. A lot of good toing and froing between those people who say, for example, that moderate consumption of alcohol uh, not only benefits uh, your heart health, but also is nice and adds pleasure to your life. Oh, I mean, you have you have people who say alcohol is bad. You have people who say alcohol is evil. You have those who say alcohol is a scourge. And then occasionally as a wild card, you bring on someone who says they once heard of someone you know, being possessed by alcohol and murdering a village. Okay, yeah. Uh, so there's a, it, uh, there's a variety of views. Oh, you know, it's everything from X to Z. <laughs> like Catherine Hepburn, she ran the gamut of emotions from A to B. Yeah, it's, uh, what's the, it's a short piece of legislation, Gary, but do you know what? Listen, we could we could stay here all night and make fun of it. It probably won't change the minds of very many senators. The sad thing about this is, I would say a pretty similar piece of legislation was proposed in Scotland. And in Scotland, there was an uprising of civil society. And the arts. And the arts, and writers, and journalists, and comedians, and actors, and, and people, Gary. People, ordinary the people got up and politicians even said, no, no, this is a chilling effect on speech and how can we have satire and how can we have comedy and how can we have art and we can't have this and we have to have a balance and we have to protect people but we also have to protect fundamental liberties and we need to live in a free society. And what happened was the piece of legislation was changed, it was amended, it was adapted and substantially changed. I have absolutely no belief that outside of GRIPT, the ABI and two or three other nutters 
jumping up and down, screaming into the void. Anybody will do a damn thing about this. There is uh, there is one thing I wanted to talk about on the bill, briefly. Yeah? It's weird, because the there's no standardization of the language when it's talking about different things during the interpretation and definition section. It's it's like this was written by several different people and no one went through it afterwards and went, okay, now, you know, fix those gaps that happen when a document is written by multiple authors. But when it talks about disability hate crime, which I find a bit weird because they define hate crime and then they break it into certain breakdowns but not into all the breakdowns so i don't know are these the most important one but anyway it says hate crime against an individual with a disability due to a prejudice held by an offender against a particular disability not a person with a disability the disability itself which is interesting wording because i'm sure there are certain disabilities yes that you could have uh, you could have a prejudice against but i would have thought most prejudice against those with disability is is against the person with the disability yeah. No, sorry. I, I want to correct, correct something there quickly because I, for clarity, the, what the legislation in the, in Scotland actually wasn't about hate crime specifically, but rather hate crime enhancements for, regarding hate speech. Right. Well, that's technically true in Ireland as well because we do actually have laws on the books regarding a lot of this. The problem that they have is that the laws were very difficult to enforce because they had intent in them and therefore people had to show that you had intended to act in a particular way and so for i think that that explains our focus on the idea of perception here because you could argue that the courts will not accept perception but this is being brought in pretty explicitly to remove intent and move to perception so the courts may not go for it but that is what politicians want to do and that it it may have a knock-on effect on 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 speech uh and offensive Offence there, but this is not. I mean, to be fair, this is not specifically a hate speech piece of legislation. Just to be fair and to be accurate about it, I suppose. Oh, I think that's that's fair. But there's another thing in this, Michael. Prejudice is defined as a preconceived uh, belief about an individual, which belief is not based on reason or actual experience. Mm. This really, this really did need an editor to go over it. Um, Here's the interesting thing about that, Michael. Have you ever heard the phrase stereotype accuracy? It's very funny. You say that. I was listening to an, a conversation recently online with uh, Jonathan Haidt, who regular listeners of the podcast will know I am a big fan of Dr. Haidt's, Professor Jonathan Haidt's. He is a very moderate left progressive thinker. He's not a crazy right winger like us, but he is a, an accomplished psychologist. And in the context, somebody said, oh, well, that's just stereotyping. And he smiled and said, ah, yes, the discovery that stereotyping exists. And one of the reasons why stereotypes exist is because, Gary? They're accurate. Yes. Stereotype accuracy, which is to say the, the study of how accurate stereotypes are, is one of the most robust findings in psychological and sociological research. And it turns out that a lot of the stereotypes we have are very, very accurate. Now, not always, but a lot of the time. So the problem there is if you define prejudice as a you know, a belief which isn't based on reason or actual experience, well, your reason is that stereotypes are generally true. And it just seems a... It's just an odd way of phrasing prejudice. Yeah. 
just something else. But just uh, this will this will appeal to our more, shall we say, concerned friends out there regarding the general state and the direction of civilization. In the power of the court to include supervision of an offender, it says. Such a sentence may include the, the offender undergoing a period of counselling to address his or her prejudicial beliefs. So the court may mandate counselling in order to change, to re-educate you, to counsel your prejudicial beliefs. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That's going to be really fun when someone gets accused of something they obviously didn't intend and ends up in their mandatory court-appointed counselling session for their wrong thing, which in this case won't have actually happened. This is... Um, no, just... This is... If I can just, be, before we finish up, because I think we're drawing to the end of this. Listen, until and on when all this, the, shall we say, the links are drawn up and we get to a point where speech and crime are actually directly linked so that... Anybody who had an opinion about, say, transgenderism, which was different to the official line laid down by legislation, and expressing those opinions would leave himself that would leave himself open to being guilty of a hate crime. Although I think under the legislation, if he committed another crime and was perceived to have committed it because of this, then that would be that would already be an aggravating case. But the speech is not as yet, I don't think, illegal. What this does is it creates a hierarchy of motive and it makes crimes against one set of citizens worse against than the same crime committed against another citizen for different motivations and saying, well, that motivation is worse. So if I'm a, if I'm, I'm one of those people that desperately needs my Nagana vodka every day and I don't have the money for that Nagana vodka and I see the pensioner coming out of the post office and I hit the pensioner on her head and steal her pension because I want to I want to go down to the shops and get in behind the burka and get my vodka. That crime will be considered to be unaggravated by hate because my my motivation is simply my desire to drink vodka. If however I see the pensioner coming out of the post office and because of my deep unresolved feelings towards my granny, I hate I have a feelings of hatred towards this lady because she's an old lady and I hit her on the head and then steal her pension. It is now an aggravated crime. It's and and I I think this is it's a bizarre notion that somehow it is a worse crime to hit someone in the head because I don't like them because they're old, rather than simply say that rather than my desire to use them as a way to feed my need for vodka. Or to because because I want to, I'm going out that night and I want to make myself some nice new shoes and maybe a nice shirt from Louis Copeland. So I see an old one coming out and I steal her money. Surely that's just as despicable a reason to commit a crime. Isn't that just as rotten a reason to do something? Well, Michael, just, um, just on what's actually covered by this, because this is not, this is an aggravating factor for an offence. Yeah. It's a question of well, what offences does it say can be aggravated for this? And there's there's an entire section of it. There's there's eight different acts which they refer to, which go from sexual offences and rape, uh, down to the public order act, 
And I had a look at the, the Public Order Act, Michael. Yeah. And the sections that are changed. So, section 6 and 7 are changed. And that is threatening abusive or insulting behaviour in a public place and the distribution or display in a public place of material which is threatening, abuses, abusive, insulting or obscene. So there's no requirement for harm there. It just needs to be insulting. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also some others in the public order offence, but they are things like blackmail, extortion, assault, uh, those sort of things. But 6 and 7, they're where you're going to get in the, the problematic issues. And this is going to be pretty bad for everyone because if, let's say, traditional Catholics decide they want to use this uh, act, it's not going to be difficult to find people who you can make a pretty fairly grounded argument that they've engaged in insulting behaviour and that it's aggravated by being a hate crime. But did you see that? Did you see that story from the United States last week? Uh, some. Uh some county in the United States, I think it was in, in, in Georgia or somewhere, had introduced uh, uh, hate crime, hate speech laws or hate, hate, hate speech enhancements. And it was, it was kind of funny and kind of predictable. Eight people have been prosecuted under the, uh, under the, uh, under the legislation of the regulations. And they are, were all black, which I don't think was the original plan but these were individuals who mostly there were people using racial epithets against police officers. So, yeah, as you say, traditionally... How long do you think it'll be before Una Mullally will publicly distribute abusive or insulting words possibly about the church? Or actually not even about the church, but which people can say are aggravated because they perceive it to be such of uh, prejudice against a religious institution. Mm Mm-hmm. I think and that's... I would never ask that people do such a thing like that or suggest it, but I would say that sometimes the best way to demonstrate the flaws of a law is to exploit them fully against the people who implemented them. And maybe um, Una would undergo a period of counselling to address her prejudicial beliefs. Oh, can you imagine Una Malali <laughs> a court-appointed... <laughs> Catholic counselling service. Can you imagine if she just happened to get the... She got a judge with a sense of humour. <laughs> I can just see her walking in and it's just Fonzie. Oh, God, that would be brilliant. That would be fantastic. But, listen, um, it will be... The last, I suppose, thing about it is it's a phrase I've grown to just one of the phrases I've grown to just really deeply dislike because everybody just throws it around all the time constantly it's virtue signal you know but it seems to me that this is just the grossest example of that does anybody believe that somebody will not commit a crime because of this that this will in any way be a deterrent. I can't imagine that it, it would. So it is purely virtue signaling. And I also, sus- I mean, this is inevitably going to, if nothing else, this is going to take up guard a time, you know, because if we're going to have to look at aggravating 
circumstances and prosecute with aggravating circumstances. Presumably, that's going to take more time for the DPP. It's going to take more time for the prosecution. It's going to take more time for the guards. And I have a suspicion that if you were to ask a gay man who had been mugged or had his car stolen or a re- an, an immigrant who had had his flat broken into, which would you prefer? Would you would you prefer time being spent to see whether or not we can include a hate a hate a hate crime aggregate aggravation onto this crime, or give the guards a little bit more time to actually catch the person that did it? My suspicion is more people are actually concerned with giving the guards the capacity to catch the people that did it, did the crime, rather than to worry about. Creating windows into men's souls to see why they did the th- why they did the thing. It's just waving a flag about how much we care about people, and I think if we care about people, there are better ways to care for them than this. I just look forward to the fact that you can now harass, or well, not now, but assuming this goes true, we will actually be able to harass someone while also committing a hate crime. That's just efficient. Well, I suppose doubling up. So if you um if you harass someone and um actually we were talking earlier Michael about certain things having way longer maximum sentences than you would think. Do you know what the maximum sentence for conviction for harassment is? Not a clue. At uh, 7 years. Wow. So if you if you harass someone and they say it was a hate crime this bill says you are to be imprisoned for 7 years. And Michael, I might be the soulless right-winger here. And I, like, law and order, I think I'm pretty strong on. But I don't think I've ever been, like, you know, harassers? Seven years. (laughs) I don't think we'd have an inch of prison left. I think we're building prisons. I think we're definitely, we're going into the Midlands and we're, 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 we're going to take a lot of that bog that's not being used and we're going to be building at least two big prisons there. Oh, and you know, just, just in case the, the listener doesn't know what it means to harass someone, the, the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act of 1997 says you harass another when he or she, by his or her acts, intentionally or recklessly, seriously interferes with the other's peace and privacy or causes alarm, distress or harm to the other, and his or her actions are such that a reasonable person would realise that the acts would seriously interfere with the other's peace and privacy, or cause alarm, distress, or harm to the other, which is a fancy way of saying you would be shocked to the things that would constitute harassment. <laughs> you would be especially shocked if you ended up doing seven years in joking. Yeah, I just, you know, you do something, and then the person you're up against says, well, I feel he did that because I, uh, I was Catholic, or because I was straight. And suddenly uh, you're in a whole world of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. <laughs> just desperately explaining that this is not what they wanted. <laughs> well, up to that point, being very strong that this is exactly what they wanted. Yeah, yeah. But no, no, it's, hold on. Sorry. No, no, yeah, I, I know what you mean, but could we... I mean, I, I guess yeah, the law says that, That's great, that. but no, I, mean, I didn't quite, you know, really... Yeah, it's going to be... Oh, it's 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 going to be a rich source of a rich source of comedy. Yet yet another rich source of comedy. You you say that. Do you know how long it would take people to find something we've broken in here? If it's just on perception. Well, I'd never say anything that would be. But and you, Gary, sadly, 
I'm afraid I don't think you'd see the light of day again. I mean, now, I mean, I could have the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court come after me on a hate crime. I don't think he's a protective group. He's white. He's straight. He's old. Oh, what, is he old? Well, he's got an age, or a perceived age. Ah, I see, actually, there you, you're actually quite right. It doesn't matter whether he's old or not, if it's perceived age. Do you know what's actually going to be very funny, Michael? The, and it, the, the court case I'm looking forward to the most? You know the mandatory retirement age? Yeah. Did you know that under this, this would be a hate crime? <laughs> well, it w- and all you have to do is find some other offence it comes under and then this aggravating and boom civil servants in prison all over the place well I suppose you could say demanding someone retiring to, demanding someone should retire because of their age I think that constitutes harassment I was about to say that that would definitely be disturbing their peace and knowingly so yeah so, and it can't be just because you know it's a you know it's a hate crime. <laughs> anyway, let's hope that we are still free and hate free on Sunday. And if we are, uh, we'll come back and conduct our miscellany of the week. Who knows? We may even know who the president of the United States is by then. And up to up to the point this bill comes into force with the unanimous support of every political party in the country and the wholesale backing of the arts. NGOs, anyone who can sign a letter. All the the newspapers, RTE. Yeah, absolutely. Up to that point, you're just going to have to go by the old-fashioned way. And if you think you may be engaging in hate speech, just ask yourself, when I said it, did I have hate in my heart? <laughs> yeah. Be good, mind yourselves, stay hate-free and COVID-free. Or get your hate in now. Get your hate in now is probably the best advice. All the best.